All right. Well, turn to Daniel 9 if you're not there already. Daniel chapter 9. And uh, we left off last week in Matthew 24 talking about Jesus' eschatology. And what does that word mean, eschatology? End times. Uh, eschatos means end times. Eschatology means study of the end times. Very good. All right. Okay. And what we learned last week is that Jesus obviously taught in accordance with the old covenant prophets who spoke of a future time of tribulation, wrath, and judgment. And what day is that called? What did the Old Testament prophets call that day? The day of the Lord. So Jesus didn't teach against what they taught. He taught right alongside in accordance with what they taught. Yet he also gave us some new insight regarding his coming. He gave us some insight regarding the elect's presence in the tribulation. Remember Jesus said if those days weren't cut short, nobody would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days are cut short. So God's chosen to a degree are in the tribulation. And he also gave us some new insight as to how his name will be central to both confusion and persecution. He talked about there will be many false Christs. Confusion. His name is going to be used to create confusion. His name will also be used as a uh, kind of a catalyst for persecution. Do you associate with this Jesus? And not with, and we know from later scriptures, not with the one who gives you his mark, the beast? Well, then if you're on Jesus' side, you will be persecuted. He's giving us this information about what's going to happen in the end. And what we're going to do now is go back to Daniel, because if you remember, Jesus talked about when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the temple. And in Matthew's account, in parentheses, let the reader understand. It's almost like a, a joke, isn't it? It's so hard to understand. But it's your duty to understand. It's your duty to get into Scripture and to look at what Scripture says. It's your duty as a Christian to have a theology of the end times, isn't it? Let the readers understand here this morning, okay? So Jesus didn't give us an answer to the when or how long. He just told us the what, what's going to happen. So we're going to turn to Daniel for that particular information, uh, specifically regarding the prophecy of the 77s. Would someone go ahead and read for us Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. Got it. Okay. Uh, Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with the flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. Uh, And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. Even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Okay. Well, who is speaking here in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27? Who's the one who's issuing this prophecy? The angel? Gabriel? Gabriel. 
the angel Gabriel. It's important to note. This isn't uh, Daniel uh, being receiving this from the Lord and telling the people. This is Gabriel telling Daniel, an angel of the Lord describing this. Some translations will say weeks, and some will say sevens. Okay? Um, it really doesn't matter which one yours says, whether it's seven, 70 weeks or 70 sevens. The idea is that we have 77-year periods. Okay? 77-year periods. Each uh, seven is a seven-year period. Now, I want us to do some quick math. And we can start here at the bottom, since we need to get our brains going this morning. What is one times seven? <laughs> okay, you, go, you guys sound so smart right now. Seven times seven. 49, okay. Yeah, so if you're like a football fan or something, you can handle that, because you know you're counting touchdowns. Uh, 62 times seven. 434. 434. Very good. And then a little bit easier, 70 times 7. Yeah, so all you got to do is do 7 times 7 and add a 0 on the end. 490. Okay? 490. So this is what you need to have in view here with uh, the math that we're given. And each week represents what? Or each 7 represents what? A seven-year period. And this is broken down this way on the board because that's the way it's broken down in the prophecy, right? Now, the, you have seven sets of seven that come before the 62. So it's technically uh, this segment comes first. He says you'll have seven weeks and 62 weeks. He breaks it down that way. Seven and 62. That's pretty interesting. And then we talk about this final week kind of in a... I don't know, an implicit way, you see at the end of the prophecy, the one who makes desolate, it says in verse 27, he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. And that's that final 70th week. Okay, But just generally speaking, that's how the prophecy breaks down. What will be the benefit, as we look at the, this prophecy, what will be the benefit for Israel at the end of of the 70 weeks. If you look back at the beginning of this section, verse 24 of Daniel 9, it says 70 weeks have been decreed. What's going to happen at the end of these 70 weeks according to verse 24? Salvation Jerusalem. Well, what does the text say? It doesn't say salvation, but... End of sin. Okay, end of sin is one thing. Atonement. Atonement. Everlasting righteousness. Uh-huh. Okay, so we've listed, we, depending on how we put all that together, we, I think we listed about five. There are actually six things. So look down at verse 24. Number one, finish the transgression. Number two, make an end of sin. Number three, make atonement for iniquity. And, and you look at those first three things and you think, well, that's all the same thing. Potentially... But they all sort of have different connotations. And there's a reason why they're listed out separately instead of just saying one phrase. Yes, Joe? Is that our time or God's time? What, what time? What are you talking about? Seven years. This is our time. This is the time you're living in. And we'll talk more about that momentarily. Okay? <coughs> Number four, bring in everlasting righteousness. Number five, seal up vision and prophecy. And Number six, anoint the most holy place. So you've got six things that are listed there, 
And notice that this is for Israel. This is a benefit for Israel, and we know that. Why? How do we know that this is for Israel? For your people and the Holy Spirit. Okay. And who's speaking here again? Who's the one speaking? Gabriel. Gabriel. And he's speaking to who? Daniel. Daniel. And Daniel was a Christian, right? <laughs> well, yes. maybe a saint. I guess he'd say. <laughs> well, Christ hadn't come yet. So what was he? Jew. An Israelite. If you've read through the book of Daniel, how did Daniel feel about Israel? Yes, he cared about Israel. He cared about his nation. This is God's nation. He cared about his nation. What did he do with his window? Remember what Daniel? Yeah, prayed towards the Jerusalem. Okay. Yes. Open window, right? And prayed out. And he cared about his city. Or, well, Jerusalem, his city. He cared about his nation. And you notice that that's the, the focus of this prophecy, verse 24. These weeks have been decreed for your people, Daniel, and your holy city. What's the holy city? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Okay, keep that in view. It's very important you keep that in view. We're talking about Israel and Jerusalem. Israelites in the city of Jerusalem. Transgression will be finished, it says. And this, of course, is a desperate need for Jews, especially at this time. Remember what the Day of Atonement was? It was an annual celebration. You go to Leviticus 16 to read about this. Uh, and not really celebration, an annual ceremony. Where every year, the high priest would go and they would slaughter a bull. They would slaughter a goat. They would take one goat out into the wilderness and release it. And they had to go through this ceremony every year to cover their sins. But that, that covering was temporary, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. That's why they had to do it every year. What does the book of Hebrews tell us about Jesus's? Sacrifice. Once for all, basically. We don't have to re-crucify Christ every year, every so often, do we? It is finished. So, he's saying here, Israel's transgression will be finished. And sin will be ended. There will be a substitute bearing their sin to finish their transgression, to totally forgive them once for all, and lead them into a state of glory. Sin will be ended. And during Daniel's day, boy, wouldn't that just be a glorious thought that the sin of Israel would be ended? There were so many Israelites who were compromising in Daniel's day. You remember Daniel standing up about the dietary law. So they're at the beginning of the book of Daniel. And he and just a few friends were men of conviction who stood up, weren't they? And the angel here tells them there's going to be a day when sin is going to be ended among your people and in your city. Jerusalem. There will be atonement provided. Atonement will be provided. This is a, you know, the idea of propitiation. God's wrath will totally be appeased. There will be one who pours out an atonement to appease the wrath of God, to turn away the wrath of God. And then you have these three elements that I'm just summing up with kind of the last thing, the idea the holy place will be anointed. See that at the end of the verse, end of verse 24. You've got three positive things. The, the first three were how things were going to be taken away from Israel. Sin's going to be taken away. Judgment's going to be taken away from Israel. But then there's going to be three things that are provided. So three things taken away, or three aspects of things being taken away, and three things given to them. Righteousness will be brought in. The vision and prophecy will be sealed up, which basically says all of those prophecies are going to be fulfilled. Prophecy will be ultimately, finally 
fulfilled. And then the third thing, the holy place, the most holy place will be anointed. And again, this is for Israel and in Jerusalem. What was understood by the holy place being anointed? Think Daniel was an Israelite. What is in his mind about the holy place being anointed? What was desecrated? What what was desecrated? The temple. Okay, the, the temple. His mind goes to the temple, doesn't it? The holy place, which is actual place, is going to be anointed by Jesus Christ. All right, that's a pretty amazing promise. The temple will be once for all, finally, ultimately anointed. So that's a pretty remarkable prophecy, and there's so much to understand from this. Um, God says that these years begin in verse 25. They begin from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Now, is this uh, something that Daniel was to look for as a literal fulfillment or something figurative, restoring and rebuilding Jerusalem? Is this an actual thing? Was Jerusalem, the actual physical city, going to be physically rebuilt and restored at a certain time? Or is this something that the angel was saying allegorically, like uh, Jerusalem being you know, something that's, that's figurative? I think it was actual. Since the following pages tell us that it was. Okay, good. So Gabriel here is issuing a prophecy to Daniel that is to be taken literally. Not just here, but all the way through the prophecy. Because if it's literal here, we should expect it to be literal throughout, right? Keep that in mind, okay? Um, So from the time that there's a decree issued to rebuild Jerusalem, these 77s start counting. Now, you don't need to turn there, but you can just jot down. In Nehemiah 2, you can discover where this decree was issued. This happened in history. In 445 B.C., that's our best deduction with all the information we have. We feel pretty confident. 445 B.C. was when Artaxerxes issued a decree to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. Because what had happened to Jerusalem in history? Tell me, what happened? By, remember, what kingdom? Babylonians. Babylonians. The Babylonians had come and destroyed Jerusalem. And so that's why when Gabriel says to Daniel, from a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that makes sense to Daniel. It needs to be restored and rebuilt. The Babylonians coming in and destroying everything. They're they're taking over Jerusalem. So from the time that 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 decree is issued, you start counting. And there was a king that came along through the kingdom that was over Jerusalem And he allowed the Jews to start rebuilding. And it was an official decree that went out and it's recorded in Scripture. Starting at 445 B.C. And from there, according to this prophecy, we have 7 and 62. From that time, you've got 7 weeks or 7 sevens and then another 62. So now back into a little bit of math. From 445 B.C. when that decree was issued... You've got 49 years. Remember, we did, our, we did our math. 49 years. That takes you to 396 B.C. And in that time, up to 396, you've got Jerusalem essentially rebuilt, but not to its former glory. Uh, and you've got a silent period that begins in Israel. You guys know that the 400 years leading up to John the Baptist, there wasn't a prophet in Israel, right? 
So you've got the city having been worked on. And you can read about this in Nehemiah and Ezra and some minor prophets talk about this. Okay, You've got the city being rebuilt, the temple being rebuilt. And then you enter into a silent period. Well, after the seven sevens comes another 62 sevens, according to the prophecy. Where does that take us? What is 396 B.C. plus 434 years? I think you can actually do this in your head. That takes you to what year A.D.? <laughs> not good. <laughs> Apparently you're not the only one. <laughs> 38 A.D., okay? That takes you to 38. Now we have a problem. Because Jesus already rose again and ascended into heaven at 38 A.D. That was around 33 A.D. that that happened. And it says at the end of these 69 sevens, that's when the Messiah will be cut off. So how do we reconcile this? Because we've just shot over the Messiah being cut off, and now we're you know, into the church age several years. There you go. Did Daniel have a 365-day calendar with leap years and stuff like we do? No. no. Do you know where our current time-telling came from? <laughs> Believe it or not, our calendar pre-exists Facebook. We use what's called, you know, Gregorian. And, and you can go back to, uh, what's his name, uh, Bede, the Venerable Bede, and you can read about all that in history. But this was much later that our calendar was developed. It's different than Daniel's calendar. The Jewish calendar varies uh, depending on their times in history and how you add it all up. You can have as few as 354, as many as 380. Uh, it seems as though the most common, and it seems as though what's in view here, is 360. 360-day calendar. All right? We're going to keep doing a little bit of math. 7 times, or 70 times 7 360-day years comes out to about 174,000 days. Okay? The majority of Bible scholars see these days running out to somewhere between 27 to 32, 33 A.D., which is the exact time of the Messiah's earthly ministry and crucifixion. Okay? Now, are we ever going to settle on, we have exactly the number of days, we know exactly the calendar they were using, we know the exact day that Jesus began his earthly ministry, we know the exact day Jesus died, and it all worked out, and here's all of our proof. Probably not to the degree we would like. Okay? It is just a fact, we are 2,000 years removed from Christ, on a timeline, of course, 2,500 years removed from Daniel. There's a lot of things that have happened in the last two millennia. Right. So, in two and a half millennia. But we see this prophecy issued, and of course, it all is leading up to, again, look at the text. It says in verse 26, this is leading up to what? After 69 weeks, or 69 sets of seven, the Messiah will be cut off, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. He'll be cut off and have nothing. Okay? That's where this prophecy leads up to, the time of Jesus' crucifixion. Now, notice, too, while we're making this point, it says that the Messiah is going to be cut off after those 62 weeks. It doesn't say the Messiah is going to be cut off in the 70th week. That's an important distinction. Because what we see through the course of history is a gap between that 69th week and that, and that 70th week. In fact, we're still living in that gap. 
It doesn't say that Jesus is going to be cut off, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing in the 70th week. It says that will happen after the 69th week. The Messiah was indeed cut off after those 62 weeks. And it says, too, that what's going to happen at that time is the city and sanctuary will be destroyed. And that did happen in 70 AD. It was carried out by the Romans, led by Titus. Thus, there is a time gap between the first 7 and 62 and the last one. So, as we have our, our little map, or not map, our little multiplication thing here. <laughs> There's a gap of time here. There's a gap. And we're making the case today, and we'll continue next week, that we're still living in that gap. Okay? Charles Ryrie says there's an interval of undetermined length between the first 69 weeks of seven years each and the last or 70th week of seven years. We are living in that interval. It is the time in which God is forming the church, the body of Christ, by saving Jews and Gentiles alike. And if you remember, Jesus talked about this time, and I say if you remember, because we've talked about this quite a few times recently. In Matthew 21, you can jot this down, Matthew 21, verses 43 and 44, at the end of talking about this parable of the vine grower, the owner of the vineyard sent his stewards, and they roughed up the stewards. He sent his own son, they killed his son. What should happen? To those people. Well, it says that the Jews responded, those people should be killed. And Jesus said, basically, God has sent you the prophets and you roughed up the prophets. You didn't listen to the prophets. And now God has sent you his only son. And they would, of course, go on to kill his only son. And so what he says at the end of that in verses 43 and 44 is, The kingdom is going to be taken from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And here we are. That's why you're in the family of God. It's because God is building his church, forming his church, the body of Christ. He's saving Jews and Gentiles alike. Okay? Tracking. Are you tracking? All right. The city and sanctuary are not destroyed. I'm repeating this. In the 70th week. But after the 69th week, according to this text, at that time, the Messiah will be cut off. The city and sanctuary would be destroyed by the people of the coming prince. That's an important distinction. And there will be great desolation. So for the rest of our time this morning, I want us to focus on this last part here. What does it mean that the Messiah was cut off, especially that the city and sanctuary were destroyed by the people of the coming prince? And this great desolation. I want us to have that straight going into our next couple of lessons. Okay, When it says he's going to be cut off, the Messiah cut off and have nothing. That means he's going to be crucified and not have his kingdom. He's going to be crucified and not have his kingdom. We are, you know, we're pre-millennial, right? There's coming a kingdom. Right. And we talked about this through 1 Corinthians lately. I did two messages On the coming physical kingdom of Christ. When he was crucified, though he rose again, and though he's building his church, he has not yet established his earthly kingdom, has he? Because you have all these promises of what that's going to look like, and it hasn't happened yet. Now, it's going to happen. We're just not there yet. 
He was cut off and he had nothing at his crucifixion. Okay? And the city and the sanctuary were destroyed. There are two themes running parallel to each other. What I just described, the Messiah is cut off and has nothing, and the city and the sanctuary destroyed. That's what's happening after the 69th week. Now, how did all of this play out in history? Let's go forward to the very next book of your Bible, Hosea. From Daniel, go to Hosea chapter 3. And we're going to read this whole chapter because it's five verses. <laughs> okay, would someone like to read Hosea 3? And you can, you can walk away from Sunday school saying, I read a whole chapter in that class today. <laughs> Who would like to do that for us? Okay, go ahead. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a a Bartley. (laughs) That's what Dean gave for you, right? You should know that. I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. All right. I wasn't comparing you to that woman, by the way. That sounds bad. (laughs) Bad joke. Uh, Now just focus on the last two verses of this chapter, verses 4 and 5. Look at what it says is going to happen in Israel. They're going to be without all these things. Verse 4. Without the king, without prince, without sacrifice, without pillar, without ephod, without idols. Yet there's hope in verse 5. When is Israel going to come trembling, seeking after God and seeking after David their king? When? Okay. And in particular, that's going to be in what days? The last days. So Israel is going to enter into a time before the last days where they will not have king, prince, or sanctuary. Now, part of what's being issued here to Israel, of course, is that their false worship is going to be destroyed. That was going on in Israel. You see this talk about sacred pillars and household idols. That's not pure worship. That's not godly worship. That's not what was issued to them. So their false worship is going to be destroyed. But you know what else is going to be destroyed? All their worship. They're going to be rejected. They're going to be suppressed. And they're going to enter into this time that's really desolate, leading up to a time when the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord, verse 5. This will happen in the last days. They will return to God and be restored under David's kingship, seeking David their king. Now look, Hosea 5, verse 15, just go over a page or two. Hosea 5, 15, look at what God says to them. I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And then here's the promise. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. So this is pretty vague, pretty general, but you can grasp a hold of the the promise, the principle here. That there's coming a time of affliction for Israel, and in that affliction, they will seek God. That's a promise. Okay? That's Hosea 3. 
Now turn forward with me to Luke 19. Now we're really going to jump into the New Testament. Luke chapter 19, and we're going to look at verses 41 to 44. I'll need someone to read that. Luke 19, verses 41 to 44. And let's see what Jesus has to say about this affliction coming upon Israel. And what we're going to find, you'll notice that up here, the the title, it's plural. Israel's desolations. Plural. And what Jesus is going to do here is present to us a first great time of desolation for Israel. (coughs) That for us is now in the past. And yet in other places, he's going to talk about a desolation for Israel that's yet future. So let's look at this. Luke 19, verses 41 to 44. Luke 19, 41 to 44. Who's got it? Got it. Okay. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Okay. Who's Jesus speaking to? That's a pretty dire prophecy. Who's he speaking to? Notice verse 41. When he approached the city, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw it and wept over it. Now think of that. Your Lord, your God, your Savior, weeping over the state of a city. Why was he weeping over Jerusalem specifically? That sounds like he should rejoice, not weep. (laughs) Why did he weep? Go back to the parable of the vine growers. What is Jerusalem? What What are the Jews doing with the sun? That the king has sent. Did the Jews receive or reject Jesus Christ? Broad brush. Yes. He came to his own and his own what? There you go. So he's weeping over Jerusalem because Jerusalem has not received their Messiah. And this, of course, was prophesied by Jesus himself. And in the Old Testament, it was prophesied. He says in this text that Jerusalem will be sieged because they did not, national Israel did not, embrace their Messiah. And in 70 AD, this siege occurred. Look at some of the details that he gives gives us here. The enemies are going to throw up a barricade against you, he says. They're going to surround you. They're going to hem you in on every side. They will level you to the ground. They will level... uh, The whole city, the children within the city, they will not leave in you one stone upon another. The city and sanctuary were destroyed during this time. This, again, going back to the Romans led by Titus, they came in and they did seize Jerusalem. You can read about this from a variety of historical sources. You don't just need uh, the word of God to read about this. You can get a lot of detail from ancient historians. In 70 AD, it's very famous, Jerusalem was sieged. It was ransacked. And remember last week, we looked at the beginning of Matthew 24. They're looking at the temple. And Jesus says, it's going to be destroyed. Not one stone will be left upon another. And for them, that was just unthinkable. 
Totally unthinkable. Big stones, big heavy stones. Took them a long time to put this together. An amazing feat of human strength destroyed by another feat of human strength. And Jesus said that was going to happen because they rejected their Messiah. Their temple was taken away. Their worship was taken away. And this is a foretaste of the ultimate affliction that's going to come upon this nation. He's talking about 70 AD in Luke 19. Well, let's turn over to Luke 21, just a page or two over. Luke 21, starting at verse 20. This is Luke's account of Jesus' end-time sermon. Again, we looked at Matthew 24 last week, and this is the Luke parallel to Matthew 24. Luke 21, verses 20 to 24. Who would read that for us? Luke 21, 20 to 24. Dean, go ahead. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave. And those who are in the country must not enter the city, because these are the days of vengeance, so that all things which are written <coughs> be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babes. In those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led, led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. All right, we got something interesting going on now. Like I just said, Luke 21 is Luke's account of the same sermon from Matthew 24. But Luke here includes something that Matthew doesn't have. He includes a specific reference that Jesus made again to 70 AD. This isn't talking about the great tribulation of Matthew 24. This is talking about a time of specific localized tribulation for Jerusalem. This is pretty interesting. In Luke's account of this end time sermon, he includes Jesus' prophecy of the siege of 70 AD. And now what I want to do is I want to compare and contrast what we learned from Matthew 24 last week with Luke 21. Because what some people will do is they'll look at these two uh, events and they'll say it's the same event. And here I am saying these are different ones. We've got a great tribulation coming upon the whole world in Matthew 24. We have a localized tribulation coming upon just Jerusalem in Luke 21. And what's difficult is there's some of the same verbiage used in both. If you look at what Dean just read for us, If you see in verse 21, those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. We saw that in Matthew 24, didn't we? And other phrases, we see those in Matthew 24. So how could they be two different events? Well, let me walk through that with you. I'm going to put their similarities in green, and I'll put their contrasts in red. In both of these, you have a time of great distress, multiple distresses. Remember, in Matthew 24, he talks about famines and earthquakes and all these natural disasters. Well, you get the same idea in Luke 21. It'll be a time of great distress. You see also in both accounts that the disciples will be delivered over to their enemies. Okay, the disciples will be handed over and will fall by the edge of the sword. Okay, you have the same idea. And maybe some of this stuff isn't coming specifically from 20 to 24, but generally from the sermon that's recorded in Luke 21. But either way, you you have these similarities of great distresses, disciples being handed over, and the theme of enduring to the end to be saved. Those who endure to the end will be saved. If you look back up in uh, verse 19, 
Jesus says, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. So there's the same idea of enduring to be saved. So we have a lot of similarities between Matthew 24 and Luke 21, particularly the first part of the sermon. This is the first part of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, and this is the first part of the sermon here from Luke 21, verses 10 to 19. Lots of similarities. Lots and lots of similarities. Okay? Well, uh uh-oh. Now we have a difference. In Matthew 24, remember in, uh, I already quoted it earlier in this lesson. Matthew 24, 15, Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where? In the temple. So Jesus is speaking of an existing standing temple, isn't he? Well, in Luke 21, you don't have that theme. You have Jerusalem being surrounded. Her desolation is near. And you have the whole city essentially being leveled. There will be great distress upon the land. And it says in verse 24, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot. Trampled underfoot. So instead of Jerusalem existing with a temple in it and a man coming in, you've got this idea of the whole city being sieged, being trampled, being destroyed. Okay, but now we have some more similarities. The people must flee. We see that in both sermons. He says people must flee. He also says, woe to those who are pregnant in those days, in both. Both times, there's, it's not going to be good to be pregnant or to be nursing babies in those days, Jesus said. Okay, so you've got that similarity. But then you have a couple more distinctions. In Matthew 24, you have this idea of the tribulation coming on the whole world. You don't see it just localized to Jerusalem the city of the temple. You you see this tribulation coming upon the whole world, as Tyler taught us last week, and this idea of the elect. There's the elect in Matthew 24 that are spoken of, and the days must be cut short for the sake of the elect because there will be deceivers who will try to deceive, even if possible, the elect. In Luke 21, the passage that Dean read for us, there's no talk of the elect. There's no talk of days being cut short. There's a talk of entering the time of Gentiles trampling Jerusalem, and it's going to continue until a fulfillment. That's a different idea than what's presented in Matthew 24. And one more contrast. You have in Matthew 24, Jesus speaking of that time as the tribulation, a great tribulation. He talks about the abomination of desolation. Not in Luke 21. In Luke 21, instead of calling it the tribulation... He says in verse 24, it's the times of the Gentiles. And in verse 20, this is specifically a time for Jerusalem's desolation. Notice that Jesus says it's her desolation, Jerusalem's desolation. So you've got in Matthew 24, a great tribulation affecting the whole world. Luke 21, using some of the same language as Matthew 24, talking about a localized desolation that will totally flatten and destroy Jerusalem and will kick off a time of Gentiles that will continue until its fulfillment. Matthew 24, whole world being affected. Remember what we learned last week? It'll be a time of tribulation like nothing else before it. That includes the flood, that includes everything. Jesus has perfect knowledge of world history, doesn't he? And it will be a time for the whole world like never before. And if those days weren't cut short, no one would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days are cut short. Luke 21, 
It's a time of Jerusalem's desolation. Jerusalem will be laid flat, and it will kick off a time of Gentiles that's going to continue until that time is fulfilled. Making sense? Right. Some. <laughs> they also, Luke also includes that they will be led captive into all the nations. Last Yes. Yes. Yeah, they're taken out in Luke 21. Jerusalem's being sieged and the people are being taken out into the nations. That, that's another unique element for Luke. Good. Okay. Tracking, tracking. Just write it down and hopefully it'll make sense later when you look at it again. Here's a quote from Daryl Bach that sums this up. What do these differences mean? between Matthew 24 and Luke 21. They indicate that Luke emphasizes a different element in Jesus' teaching at this point. He focuses on the nearer fulfillment in the judgment pattern described here, the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, <coughs> rather than the end, which he will introduce directly starting in the next verse, Luke 21:25. Luke sees in Jerusalem a collapse, or, or sees in Jerusalem's collapse a preview but with less intensity of what the end will be like. The two falls are related in the presence of one pictures what the ultimate siege will be like. Both are eschatological events, both are end times events in God's plan, with the fall of Jerusalem being the down payment and guarantee of the end time. I thought that was really well put. So two times where Israel's going to suffer affliction, the first being a localized foretaste of what is to come which is in the end, this mega great tribulation with the abomination of desolation standing in the temple. Okay? I'll pause again for thoughts or questions on this point. It's an interesting study, isn't it? Okay. I hope you think it's interesting. <laughs> this is what's going to happen in the world. So it's good to be aware of what the Lord has said is going to happen. Okay. So, uh, going back to this idea, in Luke's account of Jesus' end-time sermon, he includes Jesus' prophecy of the siege of 70 AD. After the times of the Gentiles attacking Jerusalem, with many desolations is fulfilled, the 70th week may begin. So look again at Luke 21, before you go back to Daniel. Look at, look at Luke 21, verse 24. It says that they will fall by the edge of the sword... They will be led captive into all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Notice he doesn't say just one time. It will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. You know what happened to Jerusalem after AD 70? It never was the same as it was before AD 70. You know how there's a huge Muslim presence in Jerusalem now, right? You know that Jerusalem doesn't have its former glory. You know that Jerusalem is, and Israel as a whole, is often spoken of in world conflicts, isn't it? People want to attack Israel, want to siege, continually siege Israel and Jerusalem. And that's why it was such a, a big moment in 1948 when Israel was given their statehood back. And they're, they're given a boundary again. It's like, okay, something's happening here. And it's a pretty big deal when the embassy, the American embassy was moved and recognizing Jerusalem 
as the capital of Israel. Those are big things. Because there are times of Gentiles where Jerusalem is going to continually be the focus of desolation. And until the time, that time is fulfilled, it's just going to keep happening. But once it's fulfilled, then things are going to change. Okay. And we know that one of the things that has to happen before that time will ultimately be fulfilled is that there's going to have to be a temple again. Because the abomination of desolation is going to have to stand in the temple, according to Matthew 24, 15. And according to Daniel. And according to Paul. 2 Thessalonians 2. So, it's one of those things where we can get a little weird on this point and start making our whole life about keeping an eye on Jerusalem and Israel. Don't do that. Don't do that. However, be aware. Because the scripture talks about it. So just be aware. Don't make your life this. But be aware of it and have it in your theology. Understand what God has said. Okay? So while those events are big events, 48 and the moving of the embassy, we shouldn't tie that to the, this generation of Matthew 24. Like if you ever get so excited about this that you're making predictions huh. in any sense, <laughs> stop. Tyler's going to come by with a yardstick and just whack you. Okay? <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> yes? Well, that is absolutely true because generation is 40 years. authority to speak on that because you were born that year. Yes. But don't make predictions. Recon- and to recognize what's going to happen, be amazed at wheels that are beginning to turn, but don't make predictions. And and e- it's so tempting. I mean even Great teachers we respect, like John MacArthur, have made <coughs> foolish statements. I, I heard a clip recently of MacArthur in 1972 saying that in the generation that follows Israel going back to the land, the Lord's going to return. And a generation is 40 years. 40 years from 1948 is 1988. So he believed that by 1988, essentially, Jesus would return. Well, here we are. I guess we missed it. Yeah. <laughs> we missed the <laughs> So... Remember, the 70th week did not immediately follow the 69th week. In fact, we're still waiting for the 70th week to begin based on the details of Daniel's prophecy. And I want us now to go back to Daniel 9 and let's look at those details to finish our class today to see why it is we believe we are still waiting for this time. Okay? Let's have someone read verses 26 and 27 to refresh our memory. Daniel 9, 26 and 27. 
Someone please read that for us. Yes, sir. 9.26.27. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be a war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate, until the decree end is poured out on the desolator. All right. So, here's your question. In verse 27, who is the he, according to the text, when it says... He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Stick to just this text. Don't pull from future texts. Who is the he referred to in verse 27? Man of lawlessness. Is that what the text says? Look at the text. Don't look at me. Look down at the text. (laughs) (laughs) Go to the word. To the word. Antichrist. Is that what the text says? The prince who is to come. The prince who is to come. Verse 26. The people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and sanctuary. Verse 27, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. How do we know that the he making the covenant is the prince who is to come and not the Messiah? Because verse 26 also talks about the Messiah. How do we know that it's talking about the prince? Our resident Hebrew scholar, Mike, says it's lowercase. So. <laughs> well, what's, what's the antecedent rule when it comes to grammar? Well, do you know what the rule of antecedent is? Tell us. <laughs> okay, here we go. Let me give you an example. Um, Logan's house will be destroyed... By Jeremy. <laughs> and he's going to do it quickly. Who's the he referring to? Jeremy. The antecedent for the he is Jeremy. It's the, the last name that was spoken. It refers back to the last one who was spoken of. It's a, it's a rule that goes across languages. Not just English, but even in Hebrew. There's a rule of antecedent. When there's a pronoun that's used, you go back to see who was the last one spoken of. And it says in verse 26, the focus of this sentence, you could say the subject of this sentence, after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and sanctuary. The prince who is to come is the antecedent. That's how we know, verse 27, he is the one who's going to make a firm covenant with the many for one week. And there's also another hint here, not just grammar rules. It says that he's going to put a stop to sacrifices by standing in the temple, Jesus tells us. And this is jumping to some later text. He's going to stand in the temple. He's going to put a stop to sacrifices. Okay? So, if you look at the flow of our text, in verse 26, what is destroyed in addition to the, uh, to the city? The city and the sanctuary. And yet... He's going to stand in the sanctuary. 
Now, isn't that interesting? So this is talking about someone who's going to be standing in a future sanctuary that will be rebuilt. Okay? That puts our minds to someone who is yet future. The temple needs to be rebuilt. And it's not just Jesus who says he's going to stand in the holy place, mind you. And second, you can drop this down. 2 Thessalonians 2.4. 2 Thessalonians 2.4. Paul says, he, the man of lawlessness, is going to take his place in the temple. He's going to declare himself to be God. So we're looking forward to after the temple is destroyed in 70 AD, that already happened, it'll be rebuilt and there will be one who is standing in it. So that's not going to be Messiah, that's going to be someone else who enters into it, declares himself to be God, who puts an end to sacrifice and makes a covenant with the many for that last seven year period. Okay, that's when you start tying passages together, that's how we're seeing it. Okay? Would that be the Yes. So you could call, yeah, go, now, yes, man of lawlessness and antichrist. Now we're going outside of Daniel 9. The prince, now what's interesting, we're talking about this prince being yet future. But it was his people who destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. Yet he himself is not to be revealed until the last days. So even though the, the man of lawlessness, the prince who was to come, he has still not yet been revealed. He had people all the way back in 70 AD. Those are the people who destroyed the city and the sanctuary. The man will then initiate the final week by making a covenant with the people. That whole, that last week here is conditioned upon the covenant that he makes with the people. When does this last seven-year period start? When he makes the covenant with the people for seven years. Okay. Has any, any man made a covenant with the people for seven years yet? No. Particularly with Israel. When Israel's in their land and apparently making a promise of peace and safety. No, hasn't happened yet. Okay. Let's see. The man will then break the covenant in the middle of the week and great destruction will follow, it says. Look at verse 27 again. In the middle of the week... He will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. Now, further evidence that this is speaking of a future time beyond 70 AD is you have the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation was written after 70 AD. And the book of Revelation says that this has yet to happen. This is a future time. It's going to be a time of tribulation. And he talks about, John, the revelator, he talks about a period of 42 months. How many years is 42 months? Three and a half. Three and a half is the middle of seven years, isn't it? After 42 months, crazy things are going to happen. You just read the book of Revelation. And from John's perspective, writing in probably 90 AD, this was yet future. It was yet future. And this information helps us to understand Jesus' words, starting at Matthew 24, 15, when Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the temple, let the reader understand, big stuff's about to happen. Okay? And that's going to happen still, yet future. John MacArthur says, the tribulation is a period of divine judgments before the return of Jesus Christ. That's how Revelation lays it out. And the establishment of his kingdom on earth. This period will last seven years based on the future 70th week of Daniel, which is 
seven years in length. Book of Revelation, you have the church being spoken of in chapters 2 and 3, and the church doesn't show up again until the, you've got the marriage supper of the Lamb, the bride of Christ being present. In that time in between, particularly chapters 6 to 18, the church isn't spoken of. But you know who's spoken of a lot? Israel. Church is spoken of at the beginning of the book, not again. Then you have Israel being spoken of over and over and over again, enduring all kinds of afflictions, but also being redeemed. And that leads up to the coming of Christ. And immediately following the coming of Christ, chapter 20, he establishes his kingdom. 1,000 years. That's the flow of the book. That's, that's a high view of revelation for you. Church, no church. Israel, afflictions and salvation, return of Christ with his church, establishing his kingdom for a thousand years. Then Satan is released one last time, one final battle, and we transition into the Father's kingdom, the new heaven and the new earth. There's your end times view. That's how John lays it out. Okay? It's an amazing thing. Well, next week, we will begin to discuss what will happen to the church regarding this final week. I just gave you a lot of information there. What will happen to Israel, and you can go all the way back to the Torah to get an idea of what will happen to Israel. We'll talk about the book of Revelation some more. We'll talk about the millennium. We'll talk about the new heaven and new earth. It won't be in just one class, okay? That's a lot. <laughs> but that's where we're going next. We have, oh, that clock is slow. We have no minutes. I'm sorry. Ah. I thought I would, I had two or three minutes, but I have negative one minute. So, one or two questions. Joseph, did you have a question? No, well, I just thought it was interesting that, you know, those people that believe that Revelation actually takes place after Jesus died, and then you said that was actually written after 780, so I'm like, yes. wow, that's, that's that crazy. changes things a little bit, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, I didn't really know when it was written. Yep. Dean? Do we know what the temple's going to look like? Is it going to be similar to what it used to be? or We don't have details on that particular temple. No. Yeah, yeah, just like the one that's down the road. <laughs> no. no. Um, now, we have details of the Millennial Temple. You go back to Ezekiel 40 and following. But this, this one that's being rebuilt at that time, no, we don't have a lot of information. What's coming into mind is um, John the Baptist saying, I'm not Elijah. And then Jesus saying later, he is. Yeah. So, just thinking that similar way to what this temple is like. Sure. Tyler? What do you say to those who hold to a pre-70 revolution? Study it. Study the facts of history. There's a great, there's a debate between Hank Hanegraaff and Mark Hitchcock about the date of the writing of Revelation. If you have, if you want to spend two hours on that topic, go watch that debate. Uh, Mark Hitchcock and Hank Hanegraaff on that one. It's just look at facts of history, look what we have in manuscript evidence, and figure that out. Now. If you determine after that, you still believe it was written before 70 AD, which I think you'd have a hard time, but say you do, you still have to deal with the way John lays out what's going to happen. Whether it was written before 70 AD or not, this is what John says is going to happen. And so you have to figure out what is the message of a revelation, regardless of when it was written. What's the message of it? Okay. Let me pray. Father, thank you again for the day that you've given us and for the revelation you've given us of what will take place. God, we are promised that those who study the book of Revelation will be blessed. God, give us a hunger and a thirst for your word, whether it's in reference to things that are happening now or things that are yet future. 
Help us to love and serve you well and bless our worship together today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.